We're still working away at our series on Through the Bible, book by book. That is uh, part of the panoramic view of the scriptures. And tonight we come to the little prophecy of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. You perhaps didn't even know there was a book like that, but there is. And if you can find it, we'll look at it together. The best way is to take the freeway to Matthew, turn turn right and go three blocks, and you come right out at the book of Zephaniah. It's the fourth to the last book of the Old Testament. I I suppose it's been so long since we took a bird's eye view through the Old Testament that most of you have by this time pretty well forgotten the major divisions of the Old Testament and uh, what they mean and how they tie together. We printed this up for you in this panoramic view of Scripture, and I hope you have this and will refresh your memory in it from time to time, because the, the problem often is we get so far away from these that we forget the detailed statement. But uh, you will recall that the prophetic writings, which were dealing with now, are uh, God's uh, way of setting forth his own character, his own being. It was given to the prophets to reveal things about God. He is their theme. And each prophet brings out a different facet of God's being. And uh, this is true of the major prophets as well as the minor prophets. They all focus upon a different attitude or concept or attribute of God. And this is also true of the prophet we are, we're looking at tonight. Zephaniah is the prophet uh, whose lot it was to speak on the most unpleasant subject in the Bible, the judgment of God. And this little prophecy of three chapters is all about the day of judgment. Now, uh, this is not the only place that this theme occurs in the scripture, but this is the most concentrated treatment of the judgment of God. And the whole book is devoted to this one theme. Now, I've already suggested that this is an unpleasant subject. In fact, there are many people today who want to rule it out of the Bible entirely. There are those who tell us that the God of the New Testament the God of our, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the kind of a God that can never move in judgment. His heart is so tender, his love is so gracious, his patience is so long-suffering that there never will be a time when God will move in vengeance. But it's remarkable that the Lord Jesus himself was the one who spoke most frequently of any of the writers of the New Testament about the judgment of God. You recall that incident that Luke tells us about in his fourth chapter when the Lord came home to his hometown after preaching down in Judea for many, many months. And he had done many miracles, and the word of his miracles had preceded him, and his all the folks in Nazareth were very anxious to see him. They'd heard about what he'd done, and he hadn't behaved like this when he was growing up as a boy in Nazareth. And they were most anxious to see if he was going to do some mighty work when he came home. And you recall, Luke tells us he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he asked to be given the book of the prophecy of Isaiah. And he opened the scroll, these uh, 
great scrolls of scripture and found the place, which happens to be the 61st chapter in our version of Isaiah, where it read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted, and uh, so on. That passage that predicts the, the ministry of the Messiah. And then he stopped right in the middle of a sentence, right at a comma. He said his, his last word was that he had come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped. But Isaiah, you remember, goes on and says, And the day of vengeance of our God. Now, the Lord didn't read that because this wasn't the time to proclaim the day of vengeance of God. But the day of vengeance is coming. And it was the Lord himself on Matthew in, the, in Matthew in the 25th chapter and Luke the 21st chapter and Mark the 13th chapter and these great sections of scripture that set forth the description of the day of the Lord. And it's this day particularly that Zephaniah is talking about. Now the name of this prophet means hidden of the Lord. And he's speaking as almost a representative of the remnant of faith, those few, relatively few people who are going to remain true to God and be faithful to his word through the time of trouble that's to come upon the earth. And they'll be hidden, as it were, of God himself among the nations of the earth. And God will watch over them to keep them in faith during this time. And it's of these people that the book of Zephaniah is written. And especially of that coming day, the day of the Lord. Now it's a vivid description. There's vivid language and clear description here. And uh, in chapter 1, Zephaniah gives us the the character of God's vengeance. Uh, It isn't a pleasant passage. It begins in verse 2 after the prophet identifies himself as, by the way, the son of, a, of one of the kings of Judah, the great-great-grandson of one of the kings of Judah. He was a royal vein, royal blood. And in verse 2, God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. That's a remarkable claim, isn't it? I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I'll sweep away every man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will overthrow the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, the false the false god of the peoples around Israel, and the name of the idolatrous priests, and those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, that is, the star worshippers, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, one of the other gods of the nations around, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And the prophet says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, there's a great deal of difference between the day of the Lord and the Lord's day. This is the Lord's day, Sunday, the day of resurrection. But the day of the Lord is something different. And we should never confuse these terms. Uh, It's uh, like the difference between a horse chestnut and a chestnut horse. Or between a 
cowboy and a boy cow. There's considerable difference there. <laughs> so the day of the Lord is one thing. The Lord's day is another. Uh, the day of the Lord, or the Lord's day, was the day when our Lord rose from the dead. And that's why we celebrate it on Sunday, the first day of the week. When our Lord Jesus appeared on the earth after his, res- after his resurrection. But the day of the Lord is the day of the manifestation of God's hand directly in human affairs. And you notice the personal pronoun all through that chapter I read, that passage I read, I will sweep away things. I will sweep away man and beast. I will cut off mankind. In the record of history, as we saw in the prophet of Habakkuk last week, you have God working through events in history working through nations and armies and calamities of various sort, and his hand is, is hidden in the, in the glove of history. But there's coming a day, and all the writers of Scripture agree, when God is going to directly interfere with the affairs of men again. Now, if you'd like to see a reference to this in the words of Jesus himself, you'll find it best, I think, in Matthew, the 25th chapter. And perhaps some of you are familiar with that, but let me read just a passage of it. Matthew 24. Our Lord speaks of a time of great tribulation. Matthew 24, verse uh, 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 9. Then they will deliver you up uh, for to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And he goes on to describe this. But this is still not the day of the Lord that Zephaniah is talking about. Because this is a time when the nations will still be moving against one another in destructive warfare. And then he says in verse uh, 21, For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been shortened, no human being would be saved. Right in line with Zephaniah's prophecy. God says, I will sweep everything off the face of the earth. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Then, the Lord says, there will appear false Christs and false prophets and will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And he says plainly, lo, I've told you this beforehand. Now, don't get excited about this. And then we come to the description of the day of the Lord. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now the Apostle Paul speaks uh, somewhat similarly, and he uses the very term, the day of the Lord. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians, you'll find... Uh, one of the references, one of the several references that Paul makes to this great event. In verse chapter 5 of First Thessalonians, he says, 
But as to the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why not? Well, because they already had it in the Old Testament. For he says, you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As travail comes upon a woman with child, and there will be no escape. But you're not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you as a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, there's the day of the Lord again. And there are many other passages that we could refer to in this respect. And they all agree that in a time when men are are proclaiming peace, but preparing for war, in a time when they are uh, holding to a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, in a time when uh, they are uh, declaring that the problems of life are being solved, but uh, when actually they're in greater danger and threat than they've ever been before. Uh, when, that, as Paul puts it, in a time of peace and safety, then the day of the Lord come. Now, I don't want to dwell too long on that because I want to come back to Zephaniah. And let's see what this prophet has to say about this. The day of the Lord, he says, is at hand. And the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, he says, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. And he goes on, uh, those who leap over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. In other words, setting everything right in the social order. Now, what is this feast? And who are these guests that are invited to the day of the Lord? Well, this is the great supper of God that's described also in Revelation verse uh, chapter 19. If you want to quickly flip to that, you find this description of John uh, as he saw the great vision. And he says in chapter 19, verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who sits upon the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had worked the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and so on. The great supper of God. And it's the birds and the vultures that are invited to the feast, to feast upon the bodies of men. Now, there's another description of this also in Ezekiel, the 39th chapter. I'll not take time to turn to that tonight. But the guests are the buzzards, the vultures, and the eagles called to feed upon the dead. The millions of earth that are slain in this terrible day when God moves directly in human affairs again. But now you say, how can this be? How can the God of love, the God of the New Testament, uh, do a thing like this? How can God, uh, who's a God who loves mercy, 
and is slow to anger. How can he ever come to this place? And there are many who tell us that we should eliminate these passages from the Bible. Just the other day I was reading a man who made the statement this way. He said, uh, we should read our Bibles, he said, much as uh, in the same way that we read literature. He said, for instance, I read Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, Kidnapped, or Treasure Island, rather. And he said, I read in there of a character named Long John Silver. And he said, I read that Long John Silver is a cruel, rapacious, untrustworthy individual, ruthless, merciless. Now, he says, if after reading that, somebody comes to me and tells me that Long John Silver is really a great guy, a good fellow at heart, and that he's kind to his mother and and uh, is a, a, a really a nice fellow once you get to know him. He says, I don't believe this because I know Long John Silver and I know he's not, not that kind of a man. Therefore, anybody that tells me that, I won't believe it. Now, they say, read your Bibles that way. We, I've come, he says, I've come to know God as a God of love and a God of grace. And therefore, when I read in the Bible something that says God is a God of vengeance or that he's going to destroy people or he's going to come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them, he says, I just don't believe it. I just wipe that out. I say that's something that someone else has insinuated because that's not the kind of God I know. And it's with this kind of reasoning that we're being told we should... Simply go through our Bibles and tear out every part that doesn't agree with our concepts of God. And when we're finished, what we've got left, of course, is nothing more than what we like. What we think God ought to be like. And you can see how such an argument defeats itself. Because the very book that tells us about God not only tells us he's a God of love, but he's a God of vengeance. And any one of us who think carefully about ourselves and about love will understand why a God of love has to be a God of vengeance. For if we love someone, we hate all that hurts it. We hate everything that injures it, or him or her. We're against that which destroys what we love. And the very love that moves the heart of God to pour himself out in a, uh, across the centuries in an unceasing effort to awaken man to his need and to hear the call of grace is the same love that at last prompts him. When those refuse to turn, when they identify themselves utterly, uh, refusing all the proffers of his grace, identify themselves with that which is opposed to his will and to his work among men that he's nothing left to do but to eliminate them. And that's why the prophet speaks so plainly about this. Now, I'm not going to dwell in the details of this. You can read it for yourself. Verse 14 of the first chapter says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening far. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud, A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. And God says in utter frankness, I'll bring distress on men so that they'll walk like the blind. 
because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Now, it isn't easy for God to speak this way. He himself says so. He says he, he takes no delight in the death of men. He says he does not delight in judgment. Judgment, the prophet says, is his strange work. His heart delights in mercy. But eventually, if his will is to be done, if earth at last is to break out into the glorious freedom of the promises of the, of the prophets concerning man, if the dreams that lie hidden away in the hearts of men, that there shall come one day a, a warless world, a time of peace, a time of plenty, a time of prosperity, a time when joy floods the earth, when men live together in glorious harmony, when even the animals have lost their enmity toward one another, and peace shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. If that's ever to come, then God must deal with the entrenched evil of men. And this is why there is absolutely certain the coming of a day of vengeance of our God. And the prophets warn of this, as the word speaks very clearly all through the New Testament as well, that when God's grace is turned aside, then, there, then God's judgment awaits. Now in chapter 2, we trace the, the, uh, uh, the extent of God's vengeance here. Certain nations are named, uh, as in ch- verse 8, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. Moab shall become like Sodom, Adam, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, and uh, then the Ethiopians in verse 12, and the Assyrians in verse 13. And the interesting thing is, of course, all these nations are now long since lost in the dust of history. Yet the promise of this day of the Lord is in the future. How can this be? How can God awaken these nations And uh, why are they mentioned here when they've long since been lost in the dust of antiquity? How can they yet be destroyed in a day to come? Well, the answer, of course, is these nations are used throughout the scriptures, not only uh, literally, but symbolically as well. They were literally destroyed in the course of, of history. But uh, with reference to the full and final meaning of the day of the Lord, they're used symbolically. And if you've been acquainted with some of our previous studies in the Old Testament, you know how this is. Moab, for instance, is always a picture of the flesh of man, his independence, his, his dependence upon his own uh, resources. Uh, the Ammonites are the same, used in the same way. Ethiopia is a picture of the stubbornness, the unchangeability of man. Can the Ethiopian change his color, the scripture says? And uh, uh, Assyria is man in his arrogance and his pride. Now, all these things, God says, he's against. And as he moves at last in judgment through the human race, these are to be eliminated. These are to be cast away. And in chapter 3... He opens this chapter with a a summary of the picture of the universality of God's wrath. You notice how extensive it is. Uh, 
He says, Woe to her that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. This could be said of almost all the cities of earth, isn't it? And uh, as you read on, you see in in verse 8, for instance, that this is a worldwide matter. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, for the day when I arise as a witness, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all the heat of my anger. And for in the fire of my jealous wrath, all the earth shall be consumed. What for? What's God after? Is he just interested in at last getting even? Wreaking his vengeance upon the stubbornness and the willfulness of men? Is he visiting the earth with this terrible hurricane of destruction in order that he might leave it nothing but a smoking ruin, barren and desolate and wasted without inhabitant? No, that's what we would do. If we, if men let loose the next war, World War Three, that's the way we'd leave the earth. But God will never leave it that way. Notice, as you read on, that after the description of all the judgment and the darkness and the gloom and the slaughter, after the desolation and the destruction, what's the next word? Verse 14. Sing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? You see, this is the new order that's coming, that's following. This is why God is dealing with men, that he might bring this out. Songs instead of sorrow. Service instead of selfishness. Security instead of slavery. This will be the consequence of God's judgment. And in verse 17, we're told that the Lord God is in the midst, not for judgment as he is in in chapter 3, verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. But here in verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll renew you in his love. He'll exalt over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. And he'll remove disaster and deal with the oppressors and save the lame and gather the outcast and change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth and bring us home. What a picture this is. Specifically, of course, it has to do with the remnant of Israel. But it's a picture of God's loving care for his people in any time of despair or darkness. And uh, it's my personal belief that this is something the church does not see. The church is, is caught away before these events occur. But in the in the, inner, in the time that follows, God calls back the remnant of Israel to himself. And they will at last break out into the song of the redeemed. Now the singing here is led by the Lord himself in a marvelous, glorious melody of joy. And it reminds you, doesn't it, of that beautiful passage in the Song of Songs. You recall, For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, and the time of the singing is come. That's what follows the time of judgment. But no one but the redeemed can join in that song. Uh, Elizabeth Browning, in her poem, The Seraphim, 
describes the angels watching the work of the Son of God on earth. And at last, seeing with stupefied amazement the mystery of the incarnation and ultimately the cross, one angel looks at this host of ransomed souls, and he says to the other, Hereafter shall the blood-bought captives raise their passion song of blood. And the other one replies, And we extend our holy vacant hands toward the throne, crying, We have no music. You see, only the redeemed can sing like this pictures. After the darkness, after the slaughter, after the terrible day of destruction, comes the day of the time of the singing that follows. And that's what God's after. That's what he's after in your life. That's possible on the level of the spirit right now. When God deals in a death stroke against the against the flesh within us, brings us through that painful experience of saying no to the ego and the self-life, there follows the time of the singing, the time that he's after, the reason he takes us through the pain and the darkness. And what you see is true of the individual life is going to be true on the whole wide scale, the whole wide uh, uh, canvas of history. As, as God brings human history as we know it to an end. Now that's what Zephaniah tells us about. It's a painful scene, but it, though it begins in darkness and gloom and destruction, it ends in singing and joy and gladness. Our Father, we know these words are true. How they make us quail. How they make us solemn, quiet before thee. What a God. A God who sees everything, who deals in righteousness. A God who loves, but who cannot be turned aside. Who will not water down his precepts. Who will not cater to our weakness, though he supplies us with fullness of strength. Lord, help us to walk softly before thee, and to love thee with all our heart and mind and strength and soul. And... We pray that in our own lives we may come to the day of singing when our hearts are filled with gladness as we anticipate and experience this coming day when earth shall break forth into beauty and glory. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.